just one grade, and it was one grade of my life in which my reputation became one very quickly of being a fighter. Um, now, maybe you can see it, you know, I don't know, maybe you're scared of me. Uh, I don't think so, but maybe. Uh, but there was a, a time in my life where I was very, very quick to get angry with others and very, very quick to take that anger out in a physical confrontation. I remember through third grade, there was many stories, and at some point when we're talking, I can tell you some specifics. I won't go through all of them now, uh, but it was became known to all the people around me that if you mess with Ken, you're going to get in a fight. Now, some people liked that, so they would mess with me because they wanted to fight me. Uh, and I'm not saying I won every fight. Actually, I probably lost more than I won, but I always wanted to fight, and a lot of it was I blamed others for it. Well, if they weren't mean, then I wouldn't punch them. If they didn't take my candy, then I wouldn't push them. If they didn't, uh, one specific instance, if they didn't um, make a paper airplane faster than me, I was going to throw them out of their desk. This is what I did. Now, I'm not proud of any of that, uh, but this is going to play out as we look at what we're going to look at today. Uh, this idea of fighting and anger is going to be seen in the book of Judges. And to, to make it personal for me, as I go through, I, you know, God has done a lot of work in my life where I don't believe I'm still a fighter in a physical way, but we'll get to that later as we'll talk about, but many of us maybe have that heart of a fighter within us. Maybe it's not physical confrontation. I mean, maybe you weren't me in third grade. Maybe you don't go around looking for a fight. Maybe you do. I don't know where you're at. I don't know all of your personal lives. Uh, but maybe it's the anger that comes out from within, that anger that maybe comes out as being critical or passive-aggressive or, or plain-aggressive or whatever it might be, but you might deal with anger and deal with uh, fighting within yourself and fight with other people in different ways. Uh, and I want us to understand that we all have a heart that is broken and sinful, and many times our anger will lead us towards uh, a violence of some sort of, or another. Uh, and so when we read about Jephthah this, this week, we read about Israel, uh, we continue to look at Judges, let us not go into it with a attitude of, wow, here we go again, we're going to look at more people who don't have a clue and who more people who are messed up. Yes, they don't have a clue, yes, they are messed up, but I know, speaking for myself, and yes, I guess I can even dare say, probably speaking for you, that we are also messed up. And so as we look at what happens with Jephthah, it's not to look at the bad things that we need to necessarily stay away from, but it's to look at what God is doing and wants to do through us. So with that as our mindset, we're going to go back into Judges. We're going to be in Judges chapter 12, and uh, we're going to look at the whole chapter. It's the end of the Jephthah story. We saw part of that last week as Pastor Justin shared of uh, Jephthah's open mouth that he just couldn't shut, and and how much trouble that got him in, and, and how really, even bigger than that, we saw that there was an absence, really, of of him calling out to the Lord, to Yahweh, to, to really be in and saturated with God's presence, but yet relied, relied on his own strength, and relied on his own wisdom, and his own words, and his own vows, to the point where he even sacrificed his own daughter to appease Yahweh the way that you would appease any other God of the day. And so that's where we were, and now we're going to finish that story. And if you didn't get a chance to hear the rest of what happened with Jephthah, I would definitely encourage you to go back and listen to that because it was very important to our understanding of what's going to happen today and what our understanding of the rest of Judges. Uh, as we always do each week, especially when I'm 
uh, up here. I just want to get us back to where we've been so you can get your mind going in the direction of where we're headed again. And uh, you know that so far in the book of Judges, we've seen that Israel starts off in courage and driving out the Canaanites out of the promised land. They start off trusting God. They start off doing well. They start off driving the Canaanites out. But very, very quickly, they gave in to compromise and now we see throughout the book of Judges, they have given into compromise and they are assimilating to the Canaanite culture. They are assimilating. They are becoming like the Canaanite culture around them. Their leaders are becoming kings like Canaanite kings. The people are worshiping false gods like the Canaanites around them do. And so that's kind of the, goal, the whole thing we've seen so far. Israel starts off well, then they compromise, and now they're just plain assimilating. They're becoming just like the Canaanites around them. So... The idea of the carousel of compromise has been seen time and time again through the book of Judges. The carousel of compromise goes like this. Israel disobeys, then God has to discipline them. And as in their deliverance, they call out to God and then he delivers them. So we have, uh, we have disobedience, leads to discipline, leads to deliverance. And then it'll go right back around. Disobedience leads to discipline, leads to deliverance. And we've seen that time and time again throughout the book of Judges. We even see that in the case of the Ammonites that we're talking about now, that God brought the Ammonites to Israel to discipline them for their disobedience again of running to other gods and not submitting to Yahweh. And we've seen even the deliverance from the Ammonites as we looked at that last week, that even despite the fact that Jephthah had a lot of... Uh, a lot of issues. Jephthah had a, a problem with opening his mouth and not speaking truth and getting himself in trouble. God still gave incredible and wonderful grace to Israel and allowed them to be uh, delivered from the Ammonites. So we've seen that so far, and now this is an, a story. Now we think, well, that's great. So the Jephthah story should be over. Like, God gave de- deliverance. He was kind of a bad dude. God gave him deliverance through his grace. But there's one more part of what Jephthah's legacy becomes, which is what we'll look at today. Uh, just a few more things. So what we've seen so far, and I just mentioned it, throughout the book of Judges, isn't just from the Jephthah story, but throughout Judges, we've seen Yahweh has given undeserved grace and perfect justice, and he does all of that to show his glory. That's what God is all about here is to show his glory through his undeserved grace to his people and perfect justice to those who turn their backs on him. Now, by the time of Jephthah, where we find ourselves, Yahweh has saved Israel from foreign oppressors at the Ammonites. I just said that. But here's the thing, and this is what something that Pastor Justin said last week, is this idea that, yes, they've been delivered from the Ammonites. They've been delivered from their oppressors, their foreign oppressors. But they have not been delivered from themselves. They have not been delivered from their own sin, delivered from their own uh, just their own disobedience, their own apostasy, whatever you want to say. There is still that is very true in Israel. And because God in chapter 10 said, I will save you no more, we now see that God has almost just given them up to themselves because they will not listen to what he says. So that's where we are, that's where we've been, and now we come into this chapter 12 and we read the end of the Jephthah story and we'll see what happens. Before we read the passage, I just the key thought for today, and you'll see this in your notes, the key thought that uh, we should come away from uh, is this today, and that is this, that compromise causes casualties. 
Uh, compromise causes, causes casualties. You say that too fast and it's a tongue twister. But we remember that compromise, when we compromise and turn away from God to serve other gods, to compromise what God says is right, to do what is wrong, when we do those things, it will cause casualties. We're going to see that as Jephthah is leading Israel, and we're going to see that there are real casualties in this Way. Now, casualties, if you don't use that word much, which some maybe do, but you know a casualty, the first definition is it's people killed or injured in war, okay? So that's the basic, that's the basic definition. People killed or injured in a war. And we're going to see that there are physical casualties to Jephthah's actions here in chapter 12. Uh, we'll get there, but 42,000 Israelites are going to die because of compromise in Jephthah and in the rest of the nation. The other definition of casualty, though, is this. A person, thing, or group badly affected by an event or a situation. So a person, thing, or group badly affected by an event or a situation. That a situation is going to arise in which there will be a bad result for the person or a bad result for the thing or the bad result for the group. So we're going to see in both ways, there are literal battlefield deaths, literal battlefield casualties, but we also see that Israel, being badly affected by their own compromise, also makes them a casualty of themselves, a casualty of their own compromise, that they are walking away from God, and we're going to see that they are being launched into turmoil, even fighting amongst each other. And I don't want to get too far ahead, so we're going to go ahead and go to chapter 12, and we're going to read all of chapter 12 Bear with me as we read. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites And Yahweh gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, from the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan, Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite uh, judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at uh, Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. And he, after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, and the, the Periathonite died and was buried at Periathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. 
All right, so we see a lot happening here in chapter 12. We're introduced to actually the end of Jephthah's story, but then we're also introduced to three other judges uh, that bring us to Samson, that I'll talk about a little bit later, bring us to the 12th judge. But let's just take a minute, and we're going to look at what happens. First, before we get anywhere, let's just take some time. We just read it, but let's look at the events of what happens in chapter 12. The events that happen in Jephthah's life at the end of his uh, story here in Scripture. We see it starts with Ephraim. And now if you notice that name, you've known, you know that Ephraim has been involved before in a few little skirmishes. Ephraim seems to be that spoiled, rotten baby that just wants to have everything and be involved in everything. And if they're not, they get upset. If you remember, they came to Gideon when Gideon didn't help them out or didn't have them help him. And they were upset with him. And Gideon was able to negotiate with them and nothing came of it. There was no major war that came of that. But now Ephraim is coming back around and we're just told at the beginning of chapter 12... After Jephthah has had this victory over the Ammonites, his daughter has been sacrificed. Now we see that the Ephraimites come up to Jephthah and they are infuriated over being left out of the battle. They are infuriated. And I say infuriated, I didn't know what word to use here to really show us how angry they really are. This isn't just, oh, you know, you hurt our feelings. They are coming to Jephthah and what do they do? They come right out and they say, we're going to burn your house over you with fire. I mean, this isn't just like, oh, we're a little upset. Now, Ephraim is coming. They, they have come to arms, by the way. They, they are coming to Jephthah, and they are saying, look, hey, we're upset. We're going to burn your house over you. Basically, we're going to kill you. We're going to destroy you. We're going to come in and take you. And, and that's, what, that's the setting. Now, this is, should be crazy to us. I mean, this is the judge that just delivered Israel from the Ammonites, and actually Ephraim is one of the, the tribes that were being threatened most by the Ammonites. And, and so that's probably one of the reasons why they're so upset that they weren't involved, because, hey, like, Jephthah, don't you understand that the Ammonites were coming against us, and we wanted a part. We wanted a part of the victory. We wanted a part of the glory. We wanted a part of vengeance. And they didn't get that, and Jephthah didn't give that to them, so they're so upset over that. Instead of thanking him and saying, hey, Jephthah, thanks for getting the Ammonites out of here, they're upset with him, ready to kill him. Now, this is crazy for us to think about, but yet we're going to see that this is going to be a theme that's going to be coming up again and again and again through the rest of the book of Judges. That selfishness and pride and own glory will take the place of unity. And so that's what we see happening and then we see Jephthah responds. Uh, so we see that they're infuriated. They threaten violence. They make And later on in the passage, by the way, and I just don't want to forget this. I might gloss over it later. It says that the reason that the Gileadites killed the Ephraimites later on um, is uh, because um, in verse 4, uh, let's see, And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. Basically what they're saying is, is you're not really... Israelites, you're not really what you should be. You're like half what you should be. They are bullying. They are making fun of Gilead. So it's not, so there's another reason here. It's not only that they threatened them, but it's also because they're being, feeling bullied. And so they're going to fight back. And I would tell you that going back to my story, a lot of the times that's why I fought back is because I was being bullied. I didn't make it right. So Jephthah, uh, you know, before, by the way, I remember with, uh, the people, the, the Ammonites, when he comes and talks to them, he, goes through this really long like political speech about why uh, there shouldn't be war 
but with Israel, with his own countrymen, he just says, hey, listen, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. When I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my own hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. So uh, he tells this to the Ephraimites, hey, I came and I asked you, and you said no. Now, this is kind of a theme that we saw last week. This isn't seen in Scripture. This this time where Jephthah apparently comes to the Ephraimites and says, hey, I need your help, and they say no. Not in Judges. Not sure if it's true. Could be true. Might not be true. We don't really know. Judging what Jephthah's done with the Ammonites by twisting things and making have-truths into what he says are truths, I'm thinking that probably there's something here that he is not really being fully honest about. He was using it as a reason or an excuse as to why he didn't invite the Ephraimites. My guess is probably that... Maybe part of this happened, uh, but not to its fullest extent, but we don't really know. But he brings this up and he says, this is the reason that I didn't ask you. Um, and then he says, so why then have you come up this day to fight against me? Now, at this point, you would think there might be some more deliberation. You'd think there'd be more uh, diplomacy happening, uh, but no. Uh, we, we see the next point of this story is after Ephraim is infuriated and they have this little tiny conversation Jephthah responded to their threat with violence. It says in verse 4, Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. Just that was his response. All right, you're coming against me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it back to you. And he takes, he takes his army and he attacks. And he responds with violence. So he told this story that might, or not, might have been true, might not have been true. And then he just goes and starts killing people. That was Jephthah's response. Remember, Jephthah is a mighty warrior. We've been told that. He'd been the leader of a basically a group of pirates and thugs for a long time. He, it's not that he wasn't strong enough in his own strength to defeat the Ephraimites, and so he does. He gathers his army, he attacks Ephraim, and then he seals off their retreat. It says they took the fords of the Jordan. What had happened if you, and I was going to get a map, and honestly I forgot to, but if you think about Israel, you'll know that there's one part of uh, Israel that's on the, the, if you're looking at the map, it would be on the left side, and then there's the right side, it's to the the east, that that we have two and a half tribes that are over there, and what has happened is Gilead is over to the east of the Jordan River. They're not in the mainland of Israel, if you will. They're over the Jordan. They're on the east side. And so Ephraim, who is normally on the west side of the Jordan, has brought their army over to talk to Jephthah in Gilead. So he's brought them over. And now what happens is Jephthah fights them, then cuts off their way of escape. He cuts off their way of retreat. Once he starts attacking them, he doesn't let them go back to their own land. That's what we see here when it says they took the fords of the Jordan. It's because Ephraim came over to challenge Jephthah, and Jephthah said, no, I'm going to defeat you, I'm going to fight you, and I'm not going to let you go back. That's what happens. And as he cuts off their way of retreat, we see that Jephthah here showed no mercy in his destruction of Ephraim. Jephthah showed no mercy in his destruction of Ephraim. And this is a sad Hard thing to see happen, but what happens is not only does he cut off their retreat, but then we see this back and forth that happens as they cut off the fords uh, of the Jordan, they cut off the way of retreat. And then 
if an Ephraim come, if an Ephraimite comes and says, let me go over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, because they would say no, because they didn't want to be killed, right? So, no, I'm not an Ephraimite. I'm just going over the Jordan because I'm on vacation. No, they didn't want to be killed, so they would say no. But then they, the men of Gilead and Jephthah devised this like little trap. And we don't know exactly why, but apparently the people of Ephraim couldn't really pronounce this word right. Uh, they couldn't pronounce it right, and so it's a slight difference. It goes from Shibboleth to Sibboleth, um, and we're not really sure. Maybe there was a lisp with one of them. You know, that would make a big difference. They just didn't, the Ephraimites didn't know how to say it. And uh, the word means grain or stream, by the way, if you're wondering that. It could either mean a piece of grain or it could be like a, a wandering stream. So either way, maybe they're pointing to the Jordan River and say, what do you call that? Or maybe a little stream that's coming off of it. Or maybe they're showing them a, a grain and saying, what do you call this? And if they say, um, if they say Shibboleth, then okay, you, you're fine. You're not an Ephraimite. But if you say Sibboleth, then you're going to die. One letter is the difference between life and death. Now, this is kind of funny. Kind of. You know, it'd almost be like, I was thinking about how this would be for us, and I thought about this, and this is funny, because, and many of you know what's going on with this, but if today, when you left the church, there were people at the exits, and they wouldn't let you get out of here uh, until you said, they would ask you, how do you say the name of the town that we're living in? <laughs> and if you said, Elmond, and by the way, probably Louise would be the one at the door, but if you said Elmond, you'd be able to go through and have, have vine. But you know, if you said Almond, then you're dead. Sorry, you're not leaving the church. This was your last day with us. It seems preposterous, but that's what Jephthah does. Just a simple pronunciation to say, hey, you know, you're an Ephraimite and I'm going to kill you. And then we see this sobering number. 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell, which we'll talk about in just a moment. You see, the idea of this was the insiders, the Gileadites, knew the right way to say Shibboleth. But the outsiders would say Sibboleth, and therefore, if you're an outsider, you deserve to die. And that was the mindset. If we were to do that today with the illustration I just gave, we would be seen as absolutely crazy and complete brutes. I would say that, F, that Jephthah and the rest of Gilead should be seen as brutes. They are using a simple pronunciation to be the determination of whether somebody lives or dies. But then we also see this very sobering word as well. They, then they seized him, if, they, if he said the word wrong, and slaughtered him. Didn't just say kill, imprison, give him a smack across the cheek and sent him on his way, they slaughtered him. This is where Israel is at. That not only are they fighting against their enemies, but now they are literally, although they've been already spiritually fighting against themselves in a very real way, they are now literally, physically fighting against each other. And so those are the events that happen at the end of Jephthah's life. Now, what are the results? Well, the first result I already mentioned, 42,000 Ephraimites died. 42,000. You know, we are tempted to read the Bible sometimes, and I think we don't give full thought to how big or how bad or even how good in some cases things really are. And I think this is one of those things where we just kind of read it over like it's just a number. 42,000 people, yeah, that's sad. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on to Samson. You know, he's the fun one. 
Uh, 42,000 Ephraimites fell. 42,000. So I did some, a little bit of research this week to see what that would, how we could get our mind around that. There is an estimate that in the Revolutionary War, that there were 50,000 50, American casualties. That's death and, and, uh, and wounding and any that might have died from disease afterwards. 50,000 people. 50,000 U.S. soldiers from the Revolutionary War. So one whole side of a whole war, and it's, all, it's just a little bit more than what we see lose their lives here. Now, that might not give us a good picture. Maybe for those of you who are around during Vietnam, there were 47,000 U.S. combat deaths during Vietnam. In a whole war, in that whole conflict, there were 47,000. That's only 5,000 more than the 42,000 that we see die here of the Ephraimites. And so you say, well, I'm not really good at getting this idea of casualties of war. Here's the other way that this helps me think about it, is I looked at population around us. And interestingly enough, and this is how it just worked out, there's about 43 to 44,000, they're not exact, they don't have an exact number, 43 to 44,000 people who live in Allegheny County. All of Allegheny County. And that is just 2,000 more than the amount that were slaughtered by Jephthah. Jephthah slaughtered Allegheny County. Every single person, except for 2,000 almost every single person in all of Allegheny County. That is the scope of how lost, how bad, how awful it has gotten for Israel. A whole county of people slaughtered. See, Jephthah showed his disregard for life already with his daughter, so this shouldn't surprise us. He was willing to sacrifice his very own daughter to appease a God, to appease Yahweh that he saw as just another God. And now, in the same way, I believe that what's happening here is just like the Canaanites. What would they do if people were, came against them? They would kill them. We see another point here of Jephthah just assimilating to the Canaanite culture and saying, hey, if you are going to come against me, then I'm going to take you out. Now, the Ephraimites are not innocent in this. And the, I don't want to lose the point here because a lot of times this can be talked about whose fault was this really. I would say this. It's both. It's the Ephraimites for coming and wanting war, and it's Jephthah for giving it to them. All of Israel is in a bad place. It's not just Jephthah. It is, it's the Ephraimites, it's the Gileadites, it's Jephthah. They're fighting each other. They, 42,000 people die as a result of a conflict between, really, brothers, cousins, family. And that's what's happening here. So let's not lose how big this really is. A couple other results. We see that Jephthah judges Israel for only six years. Now, as you look through the rest of the book of Judges, from what we have and what we're told, this would be the shortest period of time that any judge was judging Israel. Six years. And I don't think that makes, I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't, I think we should understand why. His blatant disregard for life, his blatant disregard for Yahweh, his blatant disregard for all of these things, and his complete obsession with becoming like the Canaanites leads him to only be for six years. And I think there is something to that. It's the shortest tenure of any judge in the book. Then we see three other judges, successive judges that are mentioned that come behind him or after him. Uh, we see Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. And these are guys that are just kind of like, Fillers between uh, Jephthah and Samson. 
But these judges live like kings, but still in a limited amount of time. There's the three successive judges that are talked about here live like kings in, a li- in limited amounts of time. We see Ibzan, and we see that not only does he have 30 sons and 30 daughters, which most likely means he took multiple wives, he then gave them in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. Whether this was other Israelite tribes or the Canaanites, we don't know for sure, but I would think when we look at the, the pattern of what Israel's been doing, this probably is Canaanites, at least some of them. And so we see he's doing that. He's got this huge family setting up a dynasty for himself. We're not told anything really about Elon other than he was around for 10 years, then he died. So we don't really know what's going on with him. Then Abdon though comes and he has 40 sons and 30 grandsons. Again, dynasty, they want a dynasty who rode on 70 donkeys and he judged Israel eight years and then he dies. But the idea I think we get even from these three judges, which really they're minor judges in the scope of the book, but we're reminded that things have not gotten any better These judges aren't getting any better. If anything, they're only getting worse as they only worry about their legacy, as they are worried about their size. Now, probably, this is time of military peace. We don't see them fighting any battles. We see, actually, when we come to Abdon, we see that his grandsons are riding around on donkeys. This isn't, those aren't war animals. So there's a good chance here that this is relative military peace which actually will play right into the Samson story in just a few pages when we'll see that actually Israel is living in a way in peace with the Philistines, just letting them rule over them and not really feeling any tension. But we'll get there in a couple weeks. But as we look at this, we see that the successive judges after Jephthah are no better. In fact, they may be worse. Now, we don't know all of that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they did some good things. We're not told. We don't know. But it seems like they're following in the ways of Gideon and in the ways of Gideon and in the ways of Abimelech. That seems to be true. So that we got the events, we've got the results. Let's just take a moment to look at the implications of the story, the implications of the results, the implications, what we should glean, what we should take out of this in chapter twelve. Because if we just leave it with this really, really sad story of Israelites fighting Israelites and slaughtering forty two thousand people then all we learned is that there was a really bad war and lots of people died. That's not why we're here. So what are the implications, first of all, that we can look at that then we can draw some application from in just a moment? Well, the implications of this text are this. Israel is no better than the Canaanites in their violence. The Ephraimites and Jephthah have blood on their hands. Both of them have blood on their hands. Just like other nations, Israel is fighting and killing to get their way. This is not God's call to Israel. If you'll even remember back when they when they they built the big altar that was supposed to show the the unity between both sides of Israel on both sides of the Jordan, and that unity is gone. Now they're fighting each other just like the Canaanites do. If they don't get their way, the reaction is let's go fight, let's go burn the house down, let's go slaughter people by not letting them go home. This is what Israel has come to. Now, this is not all of Israel. This is just a portion of Israel, but I think it's a very good showing of what is really going on in the hearts of Israel. We see here the second implication, not only that Israel is no better than the Canaanites in their violence, but that the judgment of God is falling on Israel from within. 
The judgment of God is falling on Israel from within. No longer is he just using foreign oppressors to discipline his people. Now, from the very within themselves, the judgment of God is coming. I believe Pastor Justin said last week that Jephthah really becomes the judge that we see that he, he is his own worst enemy. And I would say the same is true of Israel. They are their own worst enemy at this point. And so God's judgment is falling upon Israel for their idolatry and for their abandonment and for their apostasy, all of those things. And it's now coming to a point where they are actually feeling the judgment of God from one another. That's how bad it's gotten for Israel. And by the way, it only gets worse. They have turned their backs on God, and as a result now, they are turning their backs on God. Their relationship with God is broken, and as a result, they are turning their backs on each other, and the relationship they have with each other is broken. And then from these, and then from Jephthah and the other three guys, and we'll see this in Samson as well, and we've seen this really from all the judges before, the last implication I want to draw out here is this. Israel's leadership can't bring lasting salvation. Israel's leadership cannot bring lasting deliverance or lasting salvation. It won't work. It can't work. We see now judges are even shorter periods of time than before. Whereas before there were decades in some of these judges' lives that they ruled and that they judged Israel, not ruled, but judged Israel. And now we see that they're only judging for less and less and less time. And we also see that they're just getting worse and worse and worse. And all of that is for a very specific purpose. And we're going to see this shine super, super clear in the life of Samson. But what we know and what we see is that where Israel's leadership failed, Jesus will succeed. That they can't bring lasting salvation. They can't bring lasting deliverance. They're only going to go further down and further down and further down because of their sinfulness and their humanity. But one day, Jesus would come, and we know he has come, and he brings lasting salvation to all people. And so we can't lose that. As we see how bad things get in Judges, we can get really depressed. But the point of Judges isn't just to say, look how bad things are. The point of Judges is to say, look how bad things are. But look how good they will be. We, got, we can't miss that. So Israel's leadership can't do what only Jesus will be able to do. We need to remember that. How, do all, how does all of this apply to us? I don't think any of us today are going to go out and slaughter 42,000 people. If that's your plan for the day, uh, please tell me so I can call 911. I don't think anybody has that plan for today. So how does all of this apply to our lives? Well, the New Testament, I believe, does speak to this very issue. It doesn't specifically go back to the time of Jephthah. It doesn't specifically go back to the time of the judges. But I want to draw our attention to the book of James this morning. The book of James has a lot to say about this idea of fighting. And that's what we see in Israel. They are fighting one another. Their relationship with God has gotten to such a low point that now they are fighting with each other and can't even have unity in that. And I believe James talks about that very same thing that can crop up and rise up in our churches today and in our hearts today. And so in the book of James, chapter 4, many of you probably know exactly where we're going, but I want to read this passage and then take just make a few observations, a few things that maybe we can walk away with and apply as we think about Jephthah, as we think about Israel, and how they just threw away their relationship with God and their relationship with each other. Have we done or can we do the same thing? And we really do need to take some time to look at that this morning. 
James chapter 4, starting right in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you do not ask and you do not receive. Are you ask and do not receive because you have asked wrongly to spend it on your own passions? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to a mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil of one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Before we even start diving into some of these pieces, I want to draw that. I, that Right at the end, we read about how there is only one lawgiver and only one judge, and we know that is God himself. And it's interesting that back in the book of Judges, last week even, God is called, in the book of Judges, the one time he is called the judge, and it happened in the lifetime of Jephthah. And now we're told the same thing, that God is the only judge. We are not to be judges. And so let's talk about this passage for just a few moments. I think the application we need to understand, first of all, is this, that we, like Israel, can fight one another. And many times we do fight one another, and we are drawn to fight with one another. I believe this is true. I believe James is talking to uh, churches, and he's talking to them and saying, listen, there are quarrels and fights. And notice he doesn't say, what causes quarrels and fights with you and others in the world? He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? I think every local church, and even in the greater sense, the universal church, has many times that we fight and quarrel with one another. And this is not good for the glory of God when we fight one another, just as Israel was fighting one another. We fight and quarrel among ourselves. Later on in this passage, we see that evil, uh, it says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So we see another idea here of this is judgments made, evil judgments made against one another that are happening in the time of James, and I believe they still happen today. And what does James say? He says, yes, we fight. Yes, we judge evilly. We judge other people in evil ways. We do that. Why? James tells us why, and I think this is why, ultimately, that Israel is fighting one another. Well... He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask, and, or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your own passions, selfishness, our fighting is a result of our selfish love of the world. He goes on and says, you adulterous people. By the way, in Judges, how many times is Israel 
referred to, or the Old Testament even referred to, as adulterous in their relationship with God. There are many times even in Judges where they said that Israel has played the whore. They have been a prostitute. They have been unfaithful and adulterous to Yahweh. And they have done that. And now James says, listen, we can do the same thing if we selfishly love the world. It It says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? When we selfishly follow what the world says we should follow, which is the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. It's those things that says, do whatever makes you feel good. Do whatever make, that you want to do. We're going to see an example of this in Samson in just a couple weeks. He saw something, he wanted it, so he took it. And that is not how we are supposed to live. And that is the world's way of living. If you see it, you want it, you take it. That's what the world says. The world says, worry about yourself above all else. Take care of number one, nothing else matters because this world is all we have. You only live once, so do what you're going to do and be happy about it and find pleasure in yourself. That's what the world says. That's what the world says and God says when we are like that, when we are only worried about ourselves, when we are living in a selfish state of mind, then that is going to create quarrels and fights. That makes sense. That's logic. If we only care about ourselves, then we won't care about others. And if we don't care about others, then we will fight others or judge others. And so James is talking about this, and he talks about this in the idea here that selfish desire equals friendship with the world, which equals spiritual adultery. If we are willing to buy into the mindset of selfish, passionate desires, our own selfish passions, if we are going to go that direction, then we are friends with the world, and therefore we are committing spiritual adultery. We are turning our back on God. I believe Israel was turning their back on God, even being selfish and trying to get their own glory and trying to teach them a lesson. However, whatever the reasons were, it was all about selfishness. It was all about pride. And so then we're reminded, James says, by the way, don't you remember that God is jealous? God is jealous. God was jealous for Israel. He says that so many times. Jealousy is a good thing. If I see a man that is trying to come and flirt with my wife and draw her away from me, I'm going to get in his face and say, back off. That's good jealousy. That's what God has jealousy for us and says, no, you're mine. Don't go to others. I have... What is best is right here. I have what's best for you, and that's me, my relationship with you. And God is jealous and doesn't want to see us walk away from him to walk in the ways of the world. He is jealous in a good way, not in a selfish, oh, no, don't get away from me. I need you here. No, that's the point of he loves us so much and knows that he is what is best, and he is jealous for our hearts. He was jealous for Israel's heart, and he's jealous for ours where Israel would give it away to all the gods of the Canaanites. We give it away for all the gods of the world. And he is jealous and he wants us back. So that leads us to this last point that I put here. And there's so much more we could glean from this passage. We could preach a whole message, but we only have so much time. But the only cure for humility, or the only cure for all of this is humility through God's grace. The only cure to the fighting and the quarrels and the dissension and the anger and the division is humility. But notice that it's not humility that we manufacture ourselves because I don't believe we ever can manufacture humility. The minute we think we can manufacture humility, we're being prideful, which means we're not being humble. 
The only way that we can find true humility, and humility, again, is making most of God and, and much of others and least of ourselves. In order to be in that place, we need God's help. We need his grace. We've been talking about grace time and time and time and time again. And you're probably tired of hearing the word grace. But you shouldn't be because it's the most gracious, wonderful, awesome, amazing thing that you will ever have, that you will ever see, and that is the grace of God. He gave it through Jesus to us. He's given it through to Israel through their deliverance over and over again, even when they don't deserve it. And so what we see in James, he takes the time, he says, listen, if you are following the world and you're 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 fighting and you're just so you're being adulterers and adulteresses then he gives the answer for how we can overcome that and he says this but he in verse six but he gives more grace therefore it says god opposes the proud it gives grace to the humble grace and humility go together we need to beg god for his grace and when we understand that we need to get to that place where we don't say, I just need myself, God, but I need you, and I need you more than anything, and you are the, you are the most, the best, the greatest, and I am nothing, and I need you desperately, when we get to that place, that is his grace that is reminding us of the fact that we are nothing, and we need him to pour grace on us who do nothing but bad, but he only wants to give good, and we need to call out for his grace. And then it talks about how he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And he talks about cleansing your hearts. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. This sounds so sad. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. But what the idea of this is, is that we should be so moved because of the grace of God in in bringing humility in our lives that what the world has to offer should just make us weep because it is so useless And to weep and to mourn and to look at the world and all that it offers and say, this is nothing, this is nothing but garbage. And that's what we need to look at and we need to see. And let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. To find, we find such pleasure in the ways of the world. We do. There are things that we find in the world that they give us temporary pleasure, that we're happy and we're joyful. But God says, no, those things shouldn't bring joy or happiness, they should bring weeping. Because we see the world and we see that they are just wandering away from God. And we need to come back to the jealous God who loves us, who gives us grace, and just humble ourselves before him. And humbling ourselves is only done as we ask him to do it through us and in us. And then he says in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This isn't about humbling yourself so that you will suffer and be a martyr for anything but God says what's best for you is me and so if you humble yourselves I'll give you what is best that is the whole point draw near to God in verse 8 I want to go back to that for a moment in all of this to experience humility to experience God's grace it's to draw near to him and just know that it's him it's God is everything we need he is everything we need everything we want everything we desire everything we can think of and to live in his presence and to live in him and to know that he is dwelling in us and as we know Jesus we can just thank him every day for his grace and as we do that he will the natural outpouring will be great humility and the natural outpouring of humility will be love for one another because we're not living in the selfish ways of this world and when the love Love for one another is flowing from us, and this is seen throughout Scripture. Then the love of God is being seen through us as we love one another. Then the fights and the quarrels and the anger and the passive-aggressive comments and the criticisms and the condemnation judgments that we make on others will fade away. 
But it doesn't start by us saying, I'm going to love others more. It doesn't start by us saying, I'm going to judge people less. It starts by us saying, I want to seek God first. I want to draw near to God. And as I experience and ask for his grace and he gives that to me, I want to draw near to him, draw near to his presence, know him, and then everything else will fall behind. You see, it's tempting for us to read something like this and start asking the questions, what does it mean to judge? What does it mean not to judge? I think we get too caught up in that. We have no right to condemn anybody because God is the only judge. God is the only lawgiver, and that should humble us as well, as we remember and know that. But let's not start going back and forth on what does judgment look like, what isn't it? Because there are times we need to call our, our fellow brothers and sisters out for a sin that they're committing so that they can have a right relationship with God. So that's a real good judgment. But then there's also evil judgment that is a condemning judgment. That is a judgment that seeks to hurt people and to destroy people. And that is not what we do. That's not what we're called to do because when we humble ourselves before God, when we truly draw near to Him, then He will make those changes in our heart. We can't make them ourselves. Submit to Him. Ask Him for humility. Ask Him for grace. And he is a gracious God who will give it. If he gave it to the judges, if he gave it to Israel when they were so, so far away from him, he wants to give it to you, not only through Jesus, which we'll talk about in a moment, not only through salvation that he has given us through Jesus Christ, but each and every day we walk through this life, he pours his grace in our lives. Let's look for it and be humble. So questions to consider as we leave today. First of all, have you submitted to Jesus who brings ultimate salvation from our selfish sin? You know, our selfishness and our fighting and our ways of the world, all of those things we can get so drawn into. But maybe today you're living in the world and I've been talking about Jesus, I've been talking about God and you don't have a relationship with God and you know you don't. Maybe, or maybe now you're sitting here and wondering if you do or whether you don't, but a relationship with God comes through the ultimate gift of grace that has been given, and that is the, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he came to live a perfect life, that he died on the cross so that we don't have to go to hell, but we can experience eternal life now and forever. That he rose again to show that new life is ours, and he, that the sacrifice that he made was worthy, and we can trust him and put all of our trust in him. And when we do that, it's an act of grace that has been given to us that we receive by faith and we can have eternal life and we no longer have to live in selfishness and in the ways of the world. We no longer, have to, no longer have to live a life of fighting and quarreling and being angry with each other or angry with other people, but we can have a life of peace in Christ. And so we need to come to Jesus. And you have, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't come to him and trusted him with your life and said, Jesus, I believe all that you are and all who you say you are and all who, what you've done and I trust you with my life and I want to turn away from living for this world and I want to live for you and and you just come in faith and you say Jesus I need your grace he will give it and so do that today for for all of us here though we have a couple questions we need to ask and that is are are you am I letting selfish desires bring conflict judgment and disunity in our lives and if we are we need to consider why and I will say it is because we are driven by ourselves and we're not driven by God's grace and humility are we letting these selfish desires bring conflict, judgment, and disunity? First John four nineteen through twenty. Uh, I don't know if we're going to have that on the screen or not. But if First John four nineteen through twenty, here's the general idea of that. And many of you know this, but it says, "If you hate God, uh, how can you love your brother?" I'm sorry. Do we have that up there? <clears throat> yeah, we love because he first loved us. I should have. I had this memorized. But if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the very truth of Scripture. That a true love for God will result in a love of others. They go together. Remember the great commandment. Love God, and as you love God, then you will love others. So a true love for God will result in a love for others. So if your life is categorized, is seen as selfish, uh, that you, are, you have conflict, judgment, and disunity in your life with the people around you, maybe in our church, or maybe in your family, or maybe with other churches. I don't know what your situation is. Really take some time to examine and say, God, do I really love you? Because if I did, I, would, if I, I can love others. And that's only something between you and God that you can determine. But and finally today, have you submitted to the grace of God in humility? Have you really submitted to God's grace? Have you really come to draw close to him, ask for humility so that his grace will pour over you? And so all of these things, because even that second question that I just asked, if you get just caught on that second question, you say, well, I need to make sure that I'm more selfless. I need to make sure that I don't do any conflict or have it or judge anybody. And I need to make sure that I try to figure out a way to find unity with others. If you just leave thinking that, then you're going to try in your own strength, which is pride, which is the opposite of humility, which is where grace wants to become through, is our humility. So all of that to say this, have you submitted to the grace of God in humility? Ask God for help. Ask for him to give you humility. Ask for his grace, and then humility will come. It all goes together. And so have you submitted to the grace of God in humility? So maybe you're sitting here today and maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Make today the day you have one. You reach out to him. Maybe you have a life that is just characterized by conflict, judgment, and disunity. I would encourage you to really examine your relationship with God and and call out to him for help because we all need to submit to the grace of God. And when we submit to his grace, when we allow his grace to pour over us, then humility is the natural result. So with all of that... I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to sing a song, one of my favorite songs. And as we sing that, let's just reflect on the fact that we are nothing without him. But let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reminder from Jephthah, from Israel, for the way we can look at what they've done and say, that's not the way it should be, God. Lord, you didn't create this world to be a world of sin and destruction and fighting and conflict. You created this world good conflict and fighting and dissension and selfishness are not good. Our sin has come in and made this world no longer the way you meant it to be. And God, I pray that today we would remember that selfish living, quarreling, fighting, disunity, all of those things are not of you. God, that they usually are just a um, symptom of a greater problem and that is are we really loving you do we really have a relationship with you do we really submit to your grace god help us to ask those questions honestly god give us honest answers and help us to truly seek your face and truly seek your your grace as we so desperately need it for each moment of our lives help us to do that and lord if there's anyone here that does not know your grace at all they don't know as you as their savior they don't have a relationship with jesus God, convict them of that and bring them to a place where they need to just run to you, submit themselves to you, and allow your grace to pour over them too. So we pray all this today in Jesus' name. Amen.